Welcome to all those tuning in to January Southwest Climate Podcast. It's Friday, thankfully, January 16th, and I'm Zach Guido, and as always, accompanied here with, uh, with Mike Crimmins. So Mike, it's been uh, a couple months since I've actually sat here, and uh, hopefully we've moved on from the monsoon. Yep, it's good to have you back, Zach. I think it all turned out well. <laughs> Just to confirm, we're not talking about the monsoon anymore. We could. I mean, I'm, I'm always up for talking about this. We could talk about next, next monsoon, even. And yeah. I do think we should have a countdown clock for the monsoon season. Well, we actually have a lot to talk about because it's been a relatively busy month climate weather-wise. We've got a couple things that we'll discuss. First, we'll we'll just summarize where we are and how we've got here in the last last couple of months in terms of precipitation, snowpack and whatnot. And that'll inevitably turn our attention as always to to El Nino, which some people have been calling El Limbo. According to some it's here, according to others it's not. According to some it'll come. According to some, it won't. What did we say last time? That's what I'm. I'm now worried about that we've we've boxed ourselves in in our forecast. Yeah, it's got a I'm lot. Pretty of, sure it's I, got a lot of pet names. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I declared El Nino the last uh, podcast. You declared so. the El Nino in like March. Oh, I, I did. You're right, I did. I declared El Nino last year. In fact, I think you even claimed that it was going to be. In 1998, and 1998, El Nino, like oh, I, yeah, it was going to be the thousand-year El Nino. Play some of those uh, <laughs> clips. Thank God they're not recorded anywhere and archived somewhere. Um, okay, so El Nino will be a topic, and then uh, the climate story. I think of 2014 has been the temperatures. It's it will go down in the record books as, or it did go down in the record did, books yes. as the warmest year uh, since 1880, when when large scale widespread record keeping began. So we'll talk a, a little bit about that. Okay, so I'll start off here with just a, a brief summary of, of where we are. So the current conditions, if you look at precipitation, in terms of percent of average in the last 60 days since uh, mid-November, mid Four Corners region in, in Arizona and New Mexico have experienced above average precipitation, upwards of 150 to 200% of average. And then the Tucson area largely has experienced above average precipitation. And then in, in Arizona, in the valleys outside of that, south of the Mogollon Rim region, it's been drier than average. And most of New Mexico has similarly been drier than average. If you look at, however, just the last 30 days, that pattern has largely been, been the same. Four Corners region above average, Tucson, bullseye of precipitation on Tucson and dry elsewhere. Also, interestingly, because a lot of people care about California and the drought has been a big topic in, in the media, uh, California received a lot of rain in, in December, and it's been real dry uh, since since the end of, of December there. Yeah, they made the news with a couple of storms, but it's not been keeping pace to, to put much ease on the drought. That's right. So there was a big atmospheric river that struck California and parts of, of our, our, yeah, our desert. Southern California and Arizona. Yep. Snowpack conditions... In the Mogollon Rim region, uh, in, in the mountains of, of Flagstaff, are running at below average for this time of year, less than 70% of average, which is somewhat surprising given that it's been wetter than average in, in, in those parts, but that may reflect the sort of warm warm weather that we, we've had. In New Mexico, it's similar. Most of the basins there where snowpack is measured are running at below 80% of average. And that includes the upper Rio Grande River Basin that uh, touches into southern Colorado. That's sort of bad news for the Rio Grande because, as many of you know, that river has been running at below average stream flow conditions for a long time now. So it's, it's really in dire need of a, a, a hefty dose of uh, wintertime precipitation. Elsewhere, however, in Colorado, in the upper Colorado River Basin, it's about, it's about average. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's playing out in terms of the early streamflow forecasts uh, for the Colorado River at about average streamflow conditions. That's where we stand in terms of, of precipitation, which I think is you know what, what most people care about in, in, in the winter. How did we get there? Like what's been the atmospheric pattern that's set up that's, that's delivered above average conditions in the four corners regions and over Tucson, but, but drier elsewhere? Yeah, you know, and it, we were pouring over some of the data and, and looking at some of the, the different maps over the last couple of months. There's no single culprit. I mean, this has been the winter of weather. You know, we, we, you and I are really focused on the large scale sort of climate patterns that may be sort of driving us one direction or the other. But we've had a, just a mixed bag of all sorts of stuff since the fall. I think in our last podcast, we were, and then here I am, I'm going to go right back to the monsoon, but I kind of lump in October into our discussion because that's technically the beginning of the water mm-hmm. year. In the very beginning of October, we were still having some tropical storm activity. So if we look at some of our, our drought indices um, going back there, we had a wet October and we sort of marched forward here. And I think part of this discussion too is, is important to, to lump the fall in here is that for Arizona, most of Arizona saw zero precipitation in November. And that looked like bad news, but it was it was tempered from the fact that we come off of a wet monsoon and then a, um, those couple of interesting events in October. Then we move into a fairly busy pattern in December with some um, sort of storms dropping out of the north. It's just been a complete mixed bag over the last couple of months. Yeah, December more or less brought us close to four relatively decent precipitation events in in Tucson, mm-hmm. and January for that matter has been another another three. Yeah, it's been busy, and they've they've been weak. They've been relatively weak storms that have that have sort of dropped out of the northwest, and they've had some a little extra uh, ingredient to work with this year that we just haven't seen in the last couple of years, which is some of this moisture, um, subtropical moisture off of the the coast of Mexico. I, I got a call from a reporter um, this morning. He was sort of talking. He's getting pressure from his readers to talk about drought and is the drought improving or even even to the point where he was saying is the drought over drought here in california here here in arizona so this is arizona republic it struck me is that i think our expectations for um winter precipitation here in arizona are so low that (laughs) it only needs it only needs to rain once or twice and we and the drought's over and the drought's over yeah and and you can kind of understand where that's coming from because the last uh handful of winters you know we were getting an event waiting four weeks and getting an event um and here you know we've get three or four in a month it starts to look really wet. But again, if you sort of back up from that climate perspective, most areas across the Southwest, even with this pace of storms, are not keeping pace, which is kind of interesting, right? So to even just keep pace and hit average, we need to do better than we're doing right now. And again, like you, you mentioned there, it's a patchwork of patterns. The Four Corners have done well, and thank goodness they have, because the Four Corners has been um, left behind, they got left behind in the monsoon and they've gotten left behind last winter. And then you can even go back further and, and find out that the, the drought is very deep in that area. So getting a little bit of precip up there is some real welcome relief in the short term. That being said, though, December was pretty good for us. It was, you know, and again, it was this thing that I'm so guilty of this too. It rained a ton in our backyard, right? So you just assume that everybody else is sort of sharing in that. It was pretty isolated over um, even just uh, west, or I'm sorry, eastern Pima County. Yeah, it was good for Tucson. We had a, we had those storms pick up and bullseye on us, and you know a couple of strange events that squeezed out some showers here and there. That and, and days it wasn't even supposed to rain. Like two days ago, it rained in Tucson proper, and there was no forecast for it because it was a very very 
knife edge dicey forecast didn't look like it was going to come through and here you get you know a tenth of an inch of rain out of that which is those are real numbers for the middle of winter yeah that's a good point i mean some of the people that you and i were talking offline about uh, people in cochise county it's been it's been drying just it's just a little bit to our yeah east. i mean and again it's that you know they had seven inches of rain in a couple of days with some of those tropical storms and then it's pretty much shut down since then the thinking is is that there is a lot of soil moisture just below the surface but the surface is drying out and they're not keeping pace so and then as you mentioned too it's it's been warm over the last couple of months we've had those those cold snaps but if overall the high the the overnight temps have been high and um, we've pushed up into some pretty warm temperatures pretty regularly over the last couple of months temperature wise in the last in the last 30 days california's been above average and four corners region has been slightly above average and then elsewhere, it's been slightly below average. But if you go back to the last 60 days, then it's it's basically been above average from the half of New Mexico westward. Yeah. And, it, you know, the, if you look at the, the broader scale jet stream pattern, which kind of leads us into a discussion of is, is there any, you know, smoking gun behind making any sense of any of this, this stuff is that on average, the jet stream has had a ridge over, again, that's that high pressure you know, sort of building it from the south, steering the storm track at the top of the ridge. The, ri- the ridge has been over, kind of centered off of the west coast a little bit. We're not, we can't call this a ridiculously resilient ridge because it, it's been moving around, it's been breaking down. But, but overall, um, it's allowed that cold air to spill in on the east side of the ridge over the northern Great Plains. But what you expect with that is that underneath that ridge is where you're going to have the warm, warm air, right? And so, if we don't have that ridge breakdown and we haven't seen it much, you're not going to have much of an opportunity to move cold air into here. And it's interesting that like the couple of cold events that we've seen, thinking back, I wasn't even here for it, but the, the New Year's Eve event, mm-hmm. um, right at the, the, the turnover of the new year, that cold air came from the Great Plains and worked its way back towards the southwest. So it actually, it didn't drop straight out of the northwest or the north as it typically did. It was what we call a digging trough on that front side of the ridge, which actually backed the air into Arizona. And at the same time, there was moisture down in the, the East Pacific that it had to work with. So it had those two great components to work with, which is that cold air and then the moisture to, to make it a pretty decent storm. And that was probably one of our better storms of the whole season so far. And a very weird, I mean, it's like tough, tough, to, tough to make that happen again with all those ingredients coming together. I think you mentioned that a lot of these storms were relatively weak. Yeah. And that's probably contributing to the meager, I would say, meager snowpack conditions that we've seen so far. Even though we've had six, you know, precipitation events, you know, in the last six weeks or so, they haven't produced a lot of, or average snow for that matter. Or do you know, have they, has the snow since melted? It's a really good question. I think if you look at some of the traces of the, the snow water equivalent, we haven't lost a lot yet um, because a lot of the accumulation has come fairly recently, you know, over the last couple of weeks and, and temperatures have held in check. But, you know, we're at that make or break point where, you know, today it's we're back up in the 70s mm-hmm. and there's, a, again, a, a weak ridge building over us, um, which will steer the storms away and it'll warm up. So it's, it, you know, we could start losing that again if we don't start picking up those storms and cooling off again here. But, but to your point about the strength of them, given this sort of pattern here, some of it has been what we call a split jet stream, where we've got these closed lows or cutoff lows underneath the broader scale ridge. Those are typically of subtropical origin, so they're coming in over 
from these specifics. So they're bringing some moisture with them, but they're they are invariably warm warm storms, and they don't have so a lot of dynamics with it. So they're kind of sloppy. They're very high snow level. They kind of wander around. They're not real organized in the way that they put the rainfall down. You know, like to get really good bomber precip and really low snow levels, you want to have the whole jet stream involved, pulling down cold air with it and parking over us and putting together a really deep storm. And we haven't had a lot of that yet this season. To not be too pessimistic, it's only January, man. We're just getting into it's our- It's true. It's mid-January. Our, our, you know, our January, February, March, are, that's, the, that's our good season. The better better times we have to come, I think. Right. So, I mean, in terms of snowpack, we, you know, our eyes will be paying attention and we're not going to be too pessimistic now, even though some of the areas like the upper Rio Grande headwaters aren't living up to what, what we had hoped. I got I got a chance to talk to a couple of the water managers in Arizona over the last couple of weeks. And the forecasts that they're putting out here in Arizona are actually not pessimistic at all. At least where they're at right now, snowpack's not great, but there's still some hope and optimism that there's going to be some additional accumulation. So they're, they're, nobody's freaking out yet. Well, hope and optimism is also contained in the seasonal climate forecast. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's well, all sprinkled throughout, which is a nice thing to see. We haven't seen that. Which still time. suggests that the upcoming three months, slightly increased chances for above average precipitation. But before we get there, I wanted to go back because you said something interesting. Like this year, it's 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 been weather. Weather yeah. has dominated. Yeah, weather rains this year, I think. Right. And what you mean by that, I think, is that there's not a lot of underlying conditions that are really forcing persistence in, in, in a particular condition. Exactly. So we haven't, we haven't really seen any particular sort of mode of the atmosphere takeover or, or, or something that would set up um, a particular jet stream pattern that would park anywhere. And, you know, we, we had this discussion kind of prior to the podcast of going through the different indices and trying to look to see if you, you could pinpoint what we've seen so far this winter on a specific pattern or a specific oscillation, you can't. You can't really. You see a lot of just noodling around, the jet stream being pretty progressive, sort of moving around. And, and what this actually um, connects back to is is that, you know, us declaring and me, I'm sure I said it, we can go back over the records, is that, you know, El Nino is here. I like this idea of El Limbo because it, you know, it looks... It's half there. It's kind of, yeah, it's like half the equation, but the other half, so the sea surface temperature pattern is fine and dandy, but if it doesn't do anything to the atmosphere, nobody cares. It's right? the atmosphere matters. The atmosphere, the matters, atmosphere is right? what pulls the strings and it influences exactly. the, if you're the a global fish climate. Or you're an aquatic aquatic life who could care less about the atmosphere than than the sea surface. <laughs> then El Nino is is there. We right? don't have a lot of fish. We don't fish have a lot listening. of fish listening. I don't know. Maybe there's some you know new submarine listeners. That are, we should try to step up our marketing. Um, is that that sea surface temperature pattern? Sure looks like El Nino, but the fact that it didn't really and has not has yet to connect with the atmosphere, it doesn't really matter to us, right, at this point. So we can't we can't pin it back on El Nino, I, I guess is what I'm saying. But if you take it the other way, I don't care. You know, right. it's it's been raining. Um, whatever's causing it. So there is a climate there may be a climate part of that, and that is you mentioned before that the warmer waters off the, the west coast. That's a good really good point. Yep. And uh, we've been kicking this idea around for months now is of looking at the sea surface temperature patterns in the East Pacific. And we're not talking equatorial now. We're kind of outside of the El Nino zone, but up along the coast of um, North America and especially over sort of the coastal parts of Baja, Mexico, and Southern California, those water, I mean, we've been talking about this for probably eight months now. They've been really, really warm. And it appears that that's because of 
potentially related to the ridiculously resilient ridge, the jet stream pattern the last couple of years has um, limited the upwelling that you'd normally see there. So big the, high pressure sitting yeah. over like that that area, the yeah. western west coast of right. the US. Not being an oceanographer, not really understanding a lot of those dynamics. It, this sort of simple way of thinking of it is just allowed a lot of that warm water to pool there. And it's still there. I mean, yeah. and, and if you look at the some of the metrics of moisture over the southwest and the east Pacific, they're all connected to each other. And so whenever we get a storm that wanders by us, it seems to be able to tap in and drag this moisture in. If you think back the last five years, it's been mostly cold there, which would mean less access to moisture. So when storms would wander down by us, they wouldn't have much moisture to tap into. So they would just wander by, you know, they'd get a little bit cooler. We'd see some high clouds. That'd be about it. But, you know, we get a storm wandering by now. It's actually able to make precip. Not real well, not real organized. You know, I think it's a nice ingredient that we can look forward to. In the next have you months. read anything on on why that ridge set up so persistently in the last two, two, two three years? So what, what I've seen, and, and again, it's kind of in the blogosphere. It's it's some offline conversations with with people who um, study Enso or, or tropical climate. What I think people are really centering on is is that the we've had a very kind of La Nina like pattern across the equatorial Pacific. Lots and lots of convection over the West Pacific. Very, very warm water there building up for many, many years because of that La Nina pattern and also the climate change aspect of it as well. Driving lots and lots of tropical convection. When you have that very, very persistent area of just exhausting tons and tons of heat and energy in the atmosphere, sets up a wave pattern in the jet stream in the Northern Hemisphere. What that happens to look like is just like the ridge pattern we had over the West. I, you know, I think that this is where you're going to see a lot of attribution studies. And you, are, you already have actually some pretty controversial attribution studies have come out in the last couple of months where um, you know people are really saying, that, man, this is just a, a lock-in of a mode of natural mm. climate variability. Looks very La Nina-like that um, the atmosphere just can do. So we, we, we need to kind of be vigilant and look out for these things. Yeah, it's important uh, to, to point out that uh, sort of the official definitions of the last couple of years have been neutral. And I know, so, right. El Nino, Southern yeah. Oscillation, and so neutral. But the pattern that has set up has, I mean, it's not a clear cut thing. Yeah. And that's why some in the community are arguing that our, our El Nino, um, La Nina definitions are too um, simple. Yeah too, that, yeah. too boxy. Too boxy. And that's, that's not to argue that we don't, we do, you need to have some sort of objective definition, but we are getting into these strange flavors that we may be getting too obsessed whether or not we're crossing thresholds, which is why I think you've seen some of the agencies internationally say, you know what, El Nino enough. We'll right, it. so Japan has has done that. Yeah, CPC, the Climate Prediction Center, NOAA, um, have not. They've held back, and and part of that holding back, and still, it's it's they're not declaring it, even though that the sea surface temperatures in a particular region have been above the threshold since a uh, little bit before November. Yeah, although they're they're declining in, in temperatures now, and there's some in, indication that this event is some indication that this event is, is, is waning in terms of sea surface temperatures. But what's really been missing is that tropical convection has not been vigorous in sort of the central, slightly Eastern part of the Pacific ocean. It's sort of remained over Indonesia. And then when you have, when you don't have that precipitation moving eastward, you're not pulling the atmospheric strings as much as you would during a, a traditional El Nino event. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, you know, I think we're going to be studying this one for, for a while. And it, it's a good humbling event because I think it's going to push the science in a good direction. You, you don't see the gradient sea surface temperatures across the, the equatorial Pacific that you expect. We never had the cool down 
to help sort of drive some of those, the oscillation pattern, maybe help reorganize the convection in the right spots. The interesting thing, though, is, is that we've had trouble sort of pinpointing where this thing was going to go at every step. And if you look at the modeling, well, first off, you just look at the cross-section of temperatures across the equatorial Pacific. There, you know, there's the warm water coming to the surface in the eastern Pacific, some cooler than average water just below it, but there's still a lot of warm water in the West Pacific. And it sure seems like another Kelvin wave is possible. And the models, and again, I'm, I'm talking internationally across the board, are still converging on warmer than average temperatures all the way out through next summer. So nobody's, it's not crashing. You know, it's not like the typical where you know, we, we did it, we exhausted it, we're going back to neutral conditions. The models are still really confused with whether or not this thing is going to kind of hang on give us a, maybe a chance at a second year coming on. So I, I, yeah, I'm still scratching my head and I think we're going to continue to watch this thing over the next couple of months. And, and in terms of though, it's ENSA's impact on precipitation. It's, it's worth pointing out that it's, it's mostly felt in the, in the winter. That's right. Yeah, so, so even if there is an ENSO yeah. still chugging along or an El Nino chugging yeah. along during the summer, there is some influence that it has on the monsoon. It's not as clear cut as, as it is on, on, on winter precipitation. Yep. Yeah. And I, I think that maybe to be clear too, that there doesn't seem to be any indication that much of any of our weather patterns so far this winter has been driven by the El Nino pattern. And that's your point about it's been weather dominated. What I mean by that is, is that there, there isn't any sort of remote forcing anywhere causing the weather to organize around it. It's kind of a, the, the typical free for all in the atmosphere of, you know, the chaos of weather taking, taking root. So the flip side of it would be, say, for example, that El Nino, that El Nino sea surface temperature pattern, which we certainly have, did coordinate with the atmosphere. You'd have this big area of thunderstorm activity in the central Pacific being a big rock in the stream or a big energy source. And you would see the weather organize around that and start to persist. And we just, you know, we just haven't seen that. It does seem like that El Nino has sort of put its fingerprint on 2014 in terms of the warmest year on record. Yeah, so that's absolutely. related to it. That's right. You know, and we knew that this year was going to probably turn out if of one of the warmest, if not the warmest, because of the the shift in the, the towards warm temperatures across the Pacific, even back last spring. Okay, so for those who who, who want some numbers, so uh, the average global average temperature uh, was 0.69 degrees Celsius or 1.24 degrees Fahrenheit above the 20th century average, and that 20th century average was 57 degrees Fahrenheit. So it beat the previous record warmth of 2010 and 2005 by 0 0.04 degrees Celsius or almost uh, 0.1 degree uh, Fahrenheit, uh, 0.07 to be, to be exact, uh, Fahrenheit. So uh, regionally also it was the warmest year here in the Southwest. And by Southwest, I mean Arizona, Nevada, and California all experienced their warmest uh, year on record, and there's 120 of those years to to draw from. And then most of of the West is 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 much above uh, average, close to the the warmest year on record. The East, however, was not. It was sort of this opposite. It was below average in the East, which then, if you average the U.S. as a whole together, uh, it's not. The U.S. hasn't experienced its its warmest year on record, but. But ENSO, um, when, when sea surface temperatures uh, are warmer than average during El Nino conditions, part of that uh, heat then releases to the atmosphere, warms up, warms up the temperatures. Yep. Yeah, you don't have the, you don't have this sort of big evaporative cooling, cooler of the, of the globe going when you have a La Nina event with all that extra cool water. So it's kind of switched over to heating from cooling. 
So I think this is really, uh, you know, this is the, the the climate change fingerprint that that people respond to. I mean, if you look at the the ten or the I think it's actually the 12, 12 warmest years on record, they've all been since uh, 1998, with 1998 being the really big yeah, El yeah. Nino year that really pumped a lot of heat into the Tons atmosphere. Tons of warm water pouring back into the atmosphere. Yep, the energy pouring back into the atmosphere. So it's also worth pointing out that this this sort of has an influence on precipitation. I mean, temperature sort of ramps up the evapor- evaporation and ramps up the uh, transpiration as well. And there was this interesting paper that um, recently came out that asked the question, you know, how unusual is the 2012 to 2014 California drought? So this this is a paper by Dan Griffin, who actually was a, a Clemus uh, graduate student not too long ago and now is at the University of uh, Minnesota. Yeah, two, actually two U of A alums and colleagues and friends of ours from U of A. Yeah, so it's really trying to use uh, tree ring records to put this drought, this last three years in California into sort of a long-term 1,200-year or so perspective. And what they found was if you just look at precipitation, it, it's not un- unprecedented, I think is the words that they use. So there's been maybe a three-year period in, in the historical record that has been as dry. But then when you couple that with temperature, given that it's been really, really warm and you use some sort of imperfect, but but nonetheless drought indicators that this 2012-2014 year period historically has been the driest in California in the last 1,200 years, which is pretty pretty unprecedented. <laughs> yeah, I, it is unprecedented. But I, there's that that subtle part of that story, though, that I think that we don't spend enough time on is is that the 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 dryness, the the lack of precipitation, is not unprecedented. And that you know, this is the th- the story I think we miss and we get confused about across Southwest is that these kinds of droughts are are in our back pocket and at the ready. And when they come along, we should actually expect them, not freak out that they're completely unprecedented. The temperature component on top of it absolutely sort of drives it in a new direction, but. Just the the frequency of the drought or the the relative probability of these occurring is not it's not zero or not close to zero. I mean these these intense uh, multi year droughts, if not decades long droughts, are completely part of the natural climate variability down here across the southwest. For those that are interested, just to put a plug for my friend Dan, but the title of that paper is "How Unusual Is the 2012 to 2014 California Drought?" Um, it's a nice nice question that he poses. And yeah, to your point, uh, there was a, another report released just before this paper that just looked at precipitation and that looked at sort of the atmospheric patterns that set up that produce uh, dry conditions like what we've experienced. And that ridge is a sort of a pr- uh, present feature. Yeah, that was, so that was yet the recent attribution paper, right? That caused quite a stir because, you know, the fingerprint really was back to the natural variability part of it, which, and again, it's it's not it's not taking climate change out of the equation. What it's saying is that under natural variability in normal circumstances, this is a completely probable um, situation to have occur here, which to me communicates the idea of needing to, you know, put these into planning perspectives and and use them as um, completely likely, not likely, but if of probable scenarios for us to plan around. Well, so back to El Nino, if if that El Nino does sort of persist, you know, we probably would expect a, another very warm, if not record-breaking year. Although record-breaking may, m- might be difficult given how how strong the sea surface, how warm the sea surface temperatures were or, were earlier this yeah, year. Yeah, earlier in there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be a warm year. We're going to bump along, and you know, then you go down to the region. What's going to drive Arizona in a warm is going to be this kind of pattern that we set up. If you look back, if you look at trying to trying to do a little bit of attribution on why did California, Nevada, and Arizona go really warm. At least for Arizona, it's because you can look at this map that Zach and I are looking at, which is warm in the west, cool in the 
Midwest and the East is that the, you can you could map the jet stream pattern right on that, right? So the ridge is to the north over the western U.S. and there's a big dip. And, you know, this is where you go hashtag polar vortex, right? <laughs> is that that blue and those very cold temperatures in the upper Midwest are because of the that jet stream pattern in the polar vortex um, over the eastern U.S. So Right, so that jet stream is going north of, uh, of the U.S. on the western side and then dipping down into the Midwest. And so on the north, in the west, that warm air from the, from the tropics from lower latitudes is coming up, mm -hmm. whereas on the eastern portion, it's that cold air yeah, from, you're getting the, that push from, from the, the Arctic. North. Right, so to get us to do this again this year, we need to be under the ridge predominantly. We're kind of there right now. We're, we're still chugging along pretty warm. And another thing that really drove a lot of the temperatures here in Arizona, at least, was that we had very, very high overnight temperatures from basically like last spring through the summer. A lot of humidity fall. around. It was humidity. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that, and again, I think it really points back to the sea specific warmer than average a moisture source right at our doorstep. Yeah, that's, I didn't, yeah, I didn't actually you know? think that that could have been a cause of the high, it, high humidity. It is. It, it's, and if you go back, if you look at the overnight temps through the summer, through the fall, you know, it's six months of the year um, were way warmer than they have been in recent past, you know, because you usually start to see temperatures crash in September and October as things dry out. It never did. So that actually, I think, really helped push us over the top with temperatures this particular year in Arizona. And just to sort of hit upon the seasonal climate forecasts, which are, you know, again, largely in so influenced that they are calling for uh, the next three months to have slightly increased odds. Uh, for for above average precipitation. So, any thoughts on what they're yeah, what they're queuing into? I'm not sure. I mean, we, you know, we they sure look like an El Nino pattern, yeah. even if we don't have that locking in. So, I, I wonder if the models are struggling with, boy, we've got all the sea surface temperature pattern that looks like El Nino. The atmosphere will click in every day, or in, at any point, and give us that pattern. That that could be what they're looking at. But if you look at you know the forecast models all the way up through April, they've got an enhanced chance of above average precip here across the Southwest every month, right? And if you go back over time, that above average precip forecast has been in, in play for almost a year now. And it's not done that bad because most of these months we've actually done pretty good with precip. So there's a lot of positive signs here sort of moving forward that we're not gonna just fall off a cliff and have everything shut down. So, but again, is how much of this is driven by El Nino really showing up, I'm not sure. Yeah, and some of that those above average probabilities or above average chances for 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 wetter conditions do fall over, you know, Colorado too. Yeah. Not just not just Arizona. So that's that could potentially be helpful for the snowpack conditions. Yeah, which are already not not too bad over over Colorado. Colorado. So, yeah, it's, right. it's it's not too bad. And before ending, I forgot to mention and I did want to mention uh the snowpack conditions in California right now because they did receive uh, a lot of rain and there was some you know, flooding and there was some, some, some news there in, in December, but in California, all three of the, the Sierras, the Northern, Central and Southern Sierras are running at 40% uh, of their current January 15th percent of average and, and, and below. So those events while, while helping, you know, our precipitation scenario in California is still looking pretty bleak. Absolutely. Yeah. They got a long way to go. <laughs> I don't know, Mike, you got any parting shots? No, I, I like El Limbo. I can't claim that though. That's good. I think El, I think t-shirts, you know, El Sorta, El Limbo. Well, it, it transitioned from the El Nada, which was like not showing up, not right? showing yeah. up, which was it showed signs of showing up and then disappearing. That's happened in the past. Now we've got El El Limbo. So I think good. that you know, with all of these pet names, it's it's a it's a characteristic that Enso is is 
can be kind of whimsical. It can be whimsical and it can be of, of different characters and flavors. Yeah. So this year, yeah, we'll have to start naming, giving them pet names. Maybe. We, like, we need to come up with our own names. Like hurricanes or something like that. <laughs> be more yeah. uh, creative. Okay. That sounds good. <laughs> All right. Uh, um, we'll come back in a, in a, in a month and, and fill you in on more of the climate weather situation here in Arizona, New Mexico, and, and beyond. It could be my 12th month in a row of forecasting an El Nino showing up the next <laughs> month. So <laughs> We'll have to do some sort of verification. <laughs> exactly. on that. <laughs> I wonder uh, if, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Have a have a good have a good weekend. Happy New or if Year. you're reading this past the week or listening to this past the weekend, have a good uh, week. Uh, I'm not gonna talk about temperature. You ready? Crackle. No memory leak. We don't have a lot of fish. We don't fish have a lot listening. of fish listening. I don't know. Maybe there's some you know, new submarine listener. We should try to step up our marketing.